We have some uh, new speakers on our program this year, and I had failed to mention to them uh, the uniqueness of this building. <laughs> Cody found that out. He got here and looked around, and all we saw was a sign for the funeral home. And uh, he tried to text me, and I left my phone in here, and he kind of drove around, and he figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> so we're grateful that he made it. I have to remind the others that uh, that is unique there for us, but we're glad that Cody has come our, come our way to speak to us this evening on the running the Christian race uh, by teaching others. Uh, again, uh, Cody had planned to come with his family. Uh, his wife got sick and was not able to make the trip, and they have two boys, one four and one one. About one and a half, a boy four and one and a half. And afterwards, they were going to go see his parents, and uh, his parents agreed to pick up the four-year-old <laughs> and have spent some time with them. But anyway, we miss uh, the family not being able to come, but we're glad Cody has come our way. Uh, he's a graduate of the Southwest School of Biblical Studies, or Bible Studies, in, uh, at uh, Austin. He's also a graduate of Amherst University. Uh, done local work in Oklahoma, Louisiana, and in Texas. He is currently preaching at the Southwest Church of Christ in Austin, Texas. Faculty member of the Southwest School of Bible Studies. He's married to Courtney, and they have two boys, Jonah and Elijah. And we're grateful for his being agreeing to speak to us. Looking forward to his lesson about running this Christian race by teaching others. Cody. Well, I'm very happy to be here with you this evening. been looking forward to uh, this occasion for some time, and I am uh, disappointed that uh, Courtney and the boys were not able to be here. We were um, actually uh, in the process of doing laundry and uh, packing bags last night whenever she started uh, to uh, feel a little under the weather, so we had to make a quick uh, change in the opposite direction, but um, perhaps uh, there will be another time where we can bring them and uh, let you all meet them. Invite your attention to John chapter 7 this evening. The report was concise but it was also incredibly profound. We learn at the beginning of John chapter 7 that things, uh, tensions were mounting, and so Jesus made his way into the city very quietly during the Feast of Tabernacles. And it wasn't long before crowds began to gather, and you can read about this beginning in about verse number 25. And the people began debating amongst themselves as to whether or not Jesus really was the Christ. Some said no, many said yes. And naturally, in verse number 32, the Pharisees and uh, the religious leaders, they could not have anyone thinking that Jesus was the Christ. And so they summoned the officers 
At the end of the verse, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they summoned the officers and they sent the officers out. And the implication of the text is that their job was to find an opportunity to take Jesus into custody and to bring him back to them. But as we continue reading through the chapter, we arrive at about verse number 46, and we find that these officers who were sent to take Jesus into custody, they return empty-handed. And when they were confronted about this, their answer simply was, no man ever spoke like this man. John 7 and verse 47. You think about that statement just for a moment and ask the question, what was it about Jesus that would cause these officers who were sent for the sole purpose of apprehending him to be caught up like so many others who were there listening to him, watching him, and being around him? What was it that would cause them to step back and say, we can't take him There's never been anyone like him. There's never been anyone who has spoken like him. What was it that would cause that kind of reaction? Well, it was his teaching. You see, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, they've long since come and gone, and they have made their mark on the world. And there are a number of teachers who have long since passed from this life And yet still, their impact is felt. It's seen today in a variety of different ways. But none of those people, regardless of how well-known their name may be or how groundbreaking their work or their teaching may have been, none of those people can even come close to uh, to having an impact like Jesus had an impact in His teaching. When we look at what the Scripture says about Jesus as a teacher, it might surprise you to know that Jesus is actually referenced as a teacher more often than he's referenced as a preacher. In fact, Jesus is referred to as rabbi 14 times in the gospel accounts, or literally master. It's a term of respect that the Jews would give to their teachers. But more than that, 46 times, Jesus is simply just referred to as teacher. Didasco is the term, and it means basically to instruct or to inform or to teach. So Jesus indeed was a teacher. And when we read about the teaching of Jesus, what we see are events over and over again that remind us of what happens in John chapter 7 and verse number 46. The people are amazed and they are astonished at his teaching. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 29, because Jesus taught with authority and not like the scribes and the Pharisees. More about that later on in our study tonight. But as we look through and we read about the teaching of Jesus, we see over and over and over again, people who are amazed and who are astonished, people who realize the authority and the uniqueness and the simplicity and the relevance with which Jesus taught. He truly is the master teacher, and he truly is the greatest teacher that has ever walked this earth. And those of us who desire to teach his will would do well to try the best that we can to do it in the way in which he did it. I'm reminded of a passage in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 21. It's a passage that actually is found in the context of suffering, but the principle applies 
in this case as well. And we are told in that passage that Jesus left us a pattern that we should follow in His steps. And the word pattern, it's an interesting one. If you go and study the word, the etymology or the history of the word, do you remember when you were learning how to write your letters, capital A, capital B, lowercase a, lowercase b, and your teacher perhaps would give you a sheet of paper, and at the top of that paper would be this perfect capital letter A, and your job was to write capital letter A's over and over again until your letter A matched the perfect example at the top of the page? That's the word that's being used when Peter uses the word example. Jesus is the perfect example. He's the capital letter A. And our job is to make our lives line up as much as possible so that they look like His. He left us an example so that we should follow in His steps. As it relates to teaching, I am told that the Jews had a blessing that they would often pronounce upon their young students And it would go something like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, your teacher. And the idea, of course, is may you follow him and may you listen to him and may you mimic and may you apply the things that he teaches you so well and so closely that the dust that comes up from his shoes as he walks cakes your face and your clothes. As we look to our Savior in every way, we want to be like him. But tonight, as we talk about running the Christian race by teaching others. We want to be the best teachers that we can be. We want to be the most effective teachers that we can be. And in order to do that, why not take a look at the greatest teacher that the world has ever known and see if we can make our teaching look like his. I simply want to approach this study tonight by asking four questions, basic questions. Who was it that Jesus taught? Number two, what did Jesus teach? Number three, how did Jesus teach? And number four, why? Why did Jesus teach? So let's turn our attention to this first question. Who was it that Jesus taught? Who did he teach? And of course, by way of application, who should we teach? In short, the answer is... Everybody. Luke 19.10 says that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Who's lost? Well, Romans 3 and 23 says that everybody is lost. Matter of fact, that's the gist of the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans. Everybody's lost. Everybody has a sin problem. The Gentiles, Romans chapter 1. The Jews, Romans chapter 2. Everybody, Romans chapter 3. Everybody is lost. Everybody is in need of salvation. The Bible says that God's desire is that all be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 3. He wants all people to come to repentance, you remember. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. So who was it that Jesus taught? Jesus taught everybody. And by everybody, we mean everybody. Rich, poor, black, white, man, woman, It didn't matter what their circumstance was in life. Jesus did not come to cater to an exclusive segment of humanity. Jesus came for all people because he knew that everyone needed him and still does. I'm interested, it may interest you to note passages like Luke chapter 5, verse 29 to 32, and Luke chapter 7, verse 17 to 23. 
And particularly, Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, Jesus will make this statement, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call... Uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if you'll go back to verse number 29 and read what precedes that statement, what you'll note is that Jesus had been enjoying a meal in the house of Levi, and there were a great number of tax collectors who were there. And so the scribes and the Pharisees in verse number 30, they have a problem, not with the fact that Jesus is teaching, but they have a problem with the fact that Jesus, who claims to be a teacher, has just spent time in fellowship, if you will, with a tax collector or with tax collectors. And for them, that's something that was completely out of bounds. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, you remember that chapter that has these three great parables? The parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. Do you remember how that chapter begins? What's the basis for those parables? Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, the Scripture says that while the scribes and the Pharisees, while they stood afar off from those who needed them most, Jesus welcomed them. In fact, the implication of the passage is that Jesus did not just enjoy a casual relationship with people that needed Him the most. He didn't just walk up to them and shake their hand and say, Hey, how are you doing? It's great to see you. But instead, Jesus sought to have a relationship with them. Jesus welcomed them. He opened His arms, if you will, and welcomed them. Why did Jesus do that? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus did not open His arms to sinners to tax collectors, and to uh, everybody else because he wanted to be like them. That's not why he did it. Jesus opened up his arms and he welcomed the people that needed him the most because they needed him the most and because he wanted to help them and because he wanted to save them. So while those who should have been interested in helping the downtrodden of society would stand back and point their finger at Jesus and say, you cannot be a teacher come from God because a teacher come from God wouldn't be with those people. Jesus said, well, actually, I am a teacher come from God. As a matter of fact, I am God, and my teaching is not, it's not original to me. It comes from the Father, and these are the people... These are the people that need my attention and my teaching the most. Notice some of the groups. If you're going to break this down, some of the groups of people that Jesus spent his time with, Jesus spent his time with those who would be considered outcast. You remember John chapter 4? You remember what Jesus did? He's traveling north, and the Scripture tells us that he went through Samaria. And there is a, an implication in the passage there that says that Jesus, he, he, went, he didn't have to. He went through Samaria on purpose because he had something that he wanted to accomplish. And what is it that he does in John chapter 4? He has a discussion with a Samaritan woman. Do you remember the Samaritan woman at the well? And uh, Jesus talks to her about worship. And Jesus talks to her about the fact that she uh, had been married multiple times. You have uh, the, the man whom you're married to now, Jesus says, is not really your husband. And do you remember what happens in verse number 27? His disciples who had gone into the villages to collect some food, they come back and they see Jesus who is talking and who is teaching this woman, and they are amazed. Jesus, 
a Jew, a Jewish man, talking to not just a Samaritan, but to a Samaritan woman in the situation that she's in. Interestingly enough, you keep reading through the chapter, get down to verse number 39 to 42, and you'll note that whenever the lesson was over, the Samaritan woman is the one who went into the city, into the villages, and she told all the people, come and listen to a man who told me everything that I've ever done, and she was the catalyst that caused a great multitude to come so that they could be taught as well. Jesus taught the outcast. There's the Samaritan woman. There's the prostitute who anointed his feet with oil in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Jesus taught the forgotten. How about the crippled man in John chapter 5 or the blind man in John chapter 9? Jesus taught the rich. Remember the rich young ruler, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. Jesus even taught those who were learned those who did have power, those who did have prestige. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. He is a Pharisee, and he is described as a ruler of the Jews, and Jesus spends time talking to him. Jesus spends time teaching to him. The outcast, the forgotten, the rich, the learned, Jesus taught everybody. Anybody and everybody who was willing to take time to open up their ears and to hear what the Lord had to say, Jesus was willing to teach them. Now, what does that tell me? What does that tell us? Well, that tells us that we need to be like Him in that we have a willingness and a desire to teach anybody and everybody who will hear. Those who are of a different skin color or a different language than us, those who are practicing homosexuality, those who disagree with us on various points, uh, whatever they may be, those who are rich, those who are poor, those who are struggling with addiction to, to uh, whatever degree, it doesn't matter. Whoever the person might be, whatever their station in life might be, James chapter 2 comes, into, comes to mind here. Verses 1 to 4, remember where James says, Do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with what? With partiality. And then he paints this picture. You come to the assembly, and you have this man who comes into the assembly, and he's wearing rags, and he's obviously poor, and he doesn't smell very good. And so you put him over there in the back corner, and then here comes the guy through the door who is obviously rich, and he's obviously wealthy. He is a man who has some prestige and some affluence. And you say, come over here and sit at the chief seat. He said, you violated the will of God if you do that. Why? Because all men stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. Jesus was willing to teach everybody, and we need to be willing to teach everyone as well. No one should be neglected. Number two, what was it that Jesus taught? What was it that Jesus taught? What did he say? What did he teach? I was thinking about this uh, in the last week or so, and I was trying to figure out if there was some way to take all of the teachings of Jesus and to sort of categorize them in some way or another. And I want to tell you that I wasn't able to do it. I'm not sure that it's possible to take everything that Jesus taught and to break it down into specific categories, at least not in the time we have allotted for this evening. But I do want to share with you a few categories that I did come up with. But before, I want to make this point. The content of Jesus' teaching 
not only does it remain unmatched, but also one thing that really strikes me as interesting about the teaching of Jesus is that it was incredibly practical. Jesus was not a philosopher in the sense that he sat back and he had an audience around him and he was constantly asking questions and never giving answers. Jesus was not the kind of teacher who constantly, who constantly lived in the realm of the what if. He was not constantly postulating hypotheses and uh, trying to figure out possibility. It's not what Jesus did. When Jesus taught, Jesus dealt with things that were real-life problems that people were dealing with. He taught about things that were practical. He taught about things that were relevant. He taught about things that people needed to hear. And what's interesting about it also is that when we go through and look specifically at the content of Jesus' teaching, there's not a syllable of it that is not still just as applicable today as it was the day that those words left his mouth. Let me give you some categories. How about the subject of origin? Where did we come from? How did the world and the universe get here? Who created us? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 4? Jesus said, God, what? Can you finish it? God made them, male and female. That's, that's a statement of origin. Jesus talked about origins. Do people still need to know something about origins today? Is that still a question? Absolutely. How about this one? How about morality? I know that's a broad category, but let me just uh, let me give you a couple of uh, subpoints to it. How about the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 12? Whatever you would have man do unto you, you do unto them or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I should say is the right way of saying it. What about the golden rule? Do you think people still need to think about and to apply the golden rule even in the year 2019 in the United States of America? Absolutely they do. And I know that they do because I have a television and I see the news and I have a a phone and I see Twitter and social media and I see the things that are going on in the world. And I can't tell you how many times a day I stop and I ask myself, what is happening? If people would just take a moment to stop and think about, you know, what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do, I wonder what it would be like if the shoe was on the other foot. That's the golden rule. That falls under morality. What about, um, what about sexual morality? Didn't Jesus teach us about God's intent for marriage and human sexuality? Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 and following. One man, one woman for life, right? What about Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 28? You've heard that it's said, you have heard, uh, it said unto you, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever, do you remember it? Can you finish it? Whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So Jesus deals not only with the action, overt, but he also deals with the mind. He also deals with the end. Is Matthew 5, 28 and Matthew 19, 1 and following, is that still needed today? You bet. How about this one? You'll like this one. How about personal responsibility? John chapter 5 and verse number 40. Listen to what Jesus said. It's a simple statement, but it packs a punch. John 5 and verse number 40. Listen to this. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. That's a statement of stewardship. 
That's a statement of personal responsibility. And what Jesus is doing is He is speaking to those who refuse to believe in Him. Remember that at the beginning of the chapter, He healed a man on the Sabbath day. And so the rest of this discussion is dealing with the fallout from that, which always has blown my mind, by the way. The enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, the scribes, and so on, they're not mad that Jesus heals a, a crippled man. They're, they're mad that He healed him on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine that? So as Jesus teaches them and he deals with this, this is a statement. You will not, that's personal responsibility. You, you, you who have rejected me, you have the choice to make and you have decided not to come to me. How about Luke 15, 11 to 32, the parable of the prodigal son. At the middle of that parable, the scripture says that the son came to himself. And he said, none of my father's servants are eating pig slop like I am. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back and I'm going to repent and I'm going to ask for my father's forgiveness and I'm going to ask him to just, t- just take me on as a servant. You don't have to take me on as a son. Just take me on as a servant. You know what that is? That's personal responsibility. Now listen, if there's anything that people in this world need to hear today, especially those about, about my generation they need to hear everything and more about personal responsibility. Yes, if you, if you messed, that's your fault. If you did wrong, that's your fault, and you need to own up for it. It's not somebody else's fault. That's your fault. Listen, Jesus teaches us about personal responsibility. Jesus also teaches us about salvation. He taught that people are lost in sin, John 8, 21. He taught that hell is real, Matthew 5, 22. He taught that He came to save, Luke 19, 10. He taught that salvation was only through Him, John 14, 6. He taught that in order to be saved through Him, you have to be born again, John 3 and verse number 5. What did Jesus teach? He taught about a lot of different things, but everything that Jesus taught, it was applicable, was needed. And it continues to be needed. It continues to be applicable. So what can I, what can we learn from that? Well, just like with the first point, Jesus was willing to teach anybody. We need to be willing to teach anybody. When Jesus taught, the content of his teaching was that which was needed. It was that which got to the point. It was that which people could grab and they could take hold of and they could apply to their lives. And my friends, brethren, when we teach other people, we need to teach in the same way. We don't need to worry about teaching opinions or ideas or traditions or philosophies, and we sure don't need to be worrying about teaching politics. We need to be worrying about taking this book and opening it up and seeing what this book has to say about how each individual person lives their life and how they can change their lives to conform to the will that God has laid forth here in this book. Let's look at the third point. How did Jesus teach? Who did he teach? What did he teach? How did he teach? Three things here. Number one, would you look with me at John chapter 12? I want to read uh, together John chapter 12, beginning in verse number 47. How did Jesus teach? First of all, Jesus taught with authority. The Bible tells us in John chapter 12, verse 47 and following, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for 
I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. What is it that Jesus is saying in John chapter 12, verses 47 to 50? He's saying, listen, my teaching, the content of my teaching, I want you to understand two things. Number one, the content of my teaching is authoritative, and it's authoritative because it comes from my Father. Number two, I want you to understand that every human being that ever lives on this earth, at some point, they're going to be judged, they're going to be judged by the words that I speak. They're going to be judged by what I teach. That's a statement of authority. Mention Matthew chapter 7 and verse 29 at the beginning of our study, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the Bible says that the people were amazed at him because he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. I've always found that statement to be interesting. You see, the teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the Jews... Typically, when they would teach, they would teach uh, something like this. Uh, The tradition says, fill in the blank. You see, their doctrine or their teaching, their points, if you will, the points of their Bible class lessons were not based upon the Word of God, per se. The points of their Bible class lessons were based upon what teachers that had gone or had come before them had said. It has been said, and so we continue to say, Do you remember the the meat of Matthew chapter 5 on into chapter 6? Several times Jesus would make this statement. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. No one had ever done that before. Jesus is unique in that way. Because Jesus is the only one who who uh, who could honestly say, it doesn't matter to me. What what men have said. I'm the Son of God. My doctrine is my Father's, and it comes from Him, Jesus would say in John chapter 7 and verse number 16. So Jesus could speak with authority. Jesus could say, I say unto you, because His words were authoritative. And in connection with that, something else that we notice about Jesus is that when He was teaching, He taught with a great emphasis upon Scripture. Remember Luke 24 and verse number 27? As Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he's speaking to the two disciples there, the scripture tells us that Jesus opened up the scripture and that he he taught them everything that was written from the law and from the Psalms and from the prophets, things concerning him. He taught them the scriptures. Matthew chapter 4, you remember uh, verse 4 and following, as Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, every time the devil says something and even quotes some passages of scripture in an inappropriate way, how does Jesus answer? It is written, it is written, it is written. Jesus used scripture in his teaching. He taught with authority. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I... I know that we're trying to make application. Jesus taught with authority, but Jesus was and is the Son of God. And so how can I teach with the same authority that Jesus taught with? Well, the way that we teach with authority, like Jesus taught with authority, is we use this book. 
Because realize that when we say, thus saith the Lord, it's not our words, it's His. We're just the spokesman. And the authority and the power is not in us as the spokesman. The authority and the power is in the message. Isn't that what Romans 1.16 says? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So when I'm teaching people, I need to make sure that what I am teaching comes from the Word of God. And if I'm teaching the authoritative Word of God, well, then there's the authority. It's not in me as the teacher. It's in this book and in the words of this book. It's in the message. Jesus taught with authority. Number two, maybe my favorite point of all, Jesus taught with compassion. I want you to look with me at Matthew chapter 9 for a moment. Matthew chapter 9. And I want us to read together beginning in verse number 35. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to maybe write Matthew 9, 35 and following down and then draw an arrow all the way back up to our first point about who Jesus taught. And particularly about the fact that we see Jesus spending a lot of time and doing a lot of teaching with those who were the downtrodden and who were the forgotten and who were the outcast of society. So draw a line from this passage back to that point and then look at what happens in Matthew chapter 9 verse 35. The scripture says that Jesus, he's, he went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Stop for a moment and think about that. I often think about this passage and I can visualize, I can imagine our Lord as He travels from place to place and from village to village and He sees His people, the ones whom He created, and He sees the difficulties that they're, that they're struggling with both physically and spiritually. And Jesus knows, think by the way about the, uh, the shepherd, the good shepherd context, John chapter 10, comes on the heels of healing the blind man in John chapter 9, and uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders who are supposed to be teaching God's people, they're not doing their job. In fact, they're doing the opposite. Instead of helping the people of God get closer to God, they're making it more difficult for them to find God, Period. And so when Jesus says, you know, I'm the good shepherd, and he says, I'm the door of the sheep, and also in that passage he starts talking about the thief. The thief comes here to steal and to kill and to destroy. I would suggest to you that Jesus has in mind, when he's talking about the thief, he has in mind those religious leaders and those teachers of the Jews who ought to have been doing their job. Back to Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is, he sees He sees the terrible state of his people and it moves him. I like this statement. He was moved with compassion. What is compassion? Compassion has two components. It has an emotional component. There's no questioning, no denying that. It has an emotional component. You know that feeling you get when you see somebody who's really hurting and who's really struggling, and you get that knot in the pit of your stomach, and you just feel so bad for the situation, and you think, what can I do to help? I want to help them. What can I do? That's the emotional component of compassion. But it also has a practical component. 
And that's spelled out in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And chapter 10, verse number 1 begins what we call the limited commission, and that's not by coincidence. Jesus sees the difficulty that his people are in. He sees that they have a great need. He is moved with compassion. It literally bothers him. I wonder, when we see people who need to be taught the gospel, does it bother us when we see their state? It bothered him, and so it moved him to do something about it. That's the action component. What did he do? He sent out his disciples to teach them. He sent out his disciples to be able to tell them what it was that God wanted them to know, what they needed to know in order to be right with God. Jesus taught with compassion. I need to teach with compassion. Sometimes that's difficult, admittedly so. We could probably have an entire, uh, an entire hour where we talk about compassion and we talk about that difficult word, tactfulness, and the even more difficult word, balance. And we all know how difficult it is sometimes to measure our words and to try and meet the situation uh, adequately and to do everything that we can to be tender and to be compassionate to people while at the same time not sacrificing uh, conviction and not uh, stepping away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could talk a lot about that. We don't have the time to do it, but suffice it to say that if we're not teaching compassionately like Jesus did, we're not doing it right. Number three, Jesus taught logically. He taught in a way that made sense. We're talking about drawing arrows backward. You can take, uh, you can take your pen and you can draw an arrow from this one back to our second point about what Jesus taught. And we talked about the fact that Jesus taught things that were needed, things that, things that made sense, things that were relevant, things that were applicable. Same thing here. Would you look at Matthew 19 just for a minute? I know our time is quickly going away. Look at Matthew chapter 19. Would you notice with me what happens in verse 3 and following. We're not going to take the time to break down and explain all of this context, but I, I want to point one thing out. Then the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife just for any reason? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said, Moses, because of the hard of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her that's divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. The one thing that I want to point out here is this. You notice this whole thing begins with the Pharisees coming to him and posing the question in verse 3. And then he begins to answer in verse 4. And then in verse number 7, they have their comeback. And then we don't hear anything else from them. You ever notice that? Do you realize what Jesus has done? He actually, if you go and find a logic textbook, you're going to find basically what Jesus has just done here 
in a textbook about making logical arguments because what he has done is he has appealed to the authority of God and the beginning, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 and following, and he has forced the Pharisees to make a choice. They have two options. One, they can abandon the law of Moses. Have you not read that he that made them in the beginning? That's Genesis. That's the law of Moses. Or two, they can abandon their own practices. So Jesus puts them in that situation. You have two choices. Abandon the law of God. Abandon your own practices. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. Which one's it going to be? No wonder we don't hear anything from them uh, after verse number 7. But listen, Jesus taught in a way that makes sense. Jesus, think about the, uh, the parables. What's a parable anyway? What's the word parable mean? The word parable basically just means to toss beside. So Jesus takes a divine truth, he takes a practical illustration, and he throws the the illustration alongside the divine truth so that people can easily see it. It makes sense. Jesus taught in a way that was logical. Jesus taught in a way that was rational. Jesus taught in a way that people could understand. And we need to do the same. Our last point, and then we'll offer the invitation. Who did Jesus teach? He taught everybody. Anybody who was willing to listen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What did he teach? He taught the things that man needed to know. He taught the will of God. He taught things that were relevant, that were practical. How did he teach? With authority, with compassion, logically, in a way that made sense. But why? Why did Jesus teach? Why did he care? The short answer is to save people. That's why Jesus taught, to save people. I must work the works of him who sent me while it's day because the night comes when no man can work, Jesus would say in John chapter 9 and verse number 4. Jesus' desire was to point people to the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, John uh, chapter 8, I'm sorry, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, rather. John chapter 8 and verse uh, number 32. Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 23, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Why did Jesus teach? Because he wanted to point people back to God. Now this point, like the statement with which we began in John chapter 7, verse 46, the application of it is very simple to state, very straightforward. But the roots go deep. Why do I teach? Why do you teach? That's the question. It's simple to state. But it's another thing altogether to think about it. Do I teach because that's something that I've always done? Do I teach because my husband or because my wife or my mom or dad or aunt or uncle or somebody else prodded me and guilted me into doing it? Do I teach because I feel compulsed to do it because there's nobody else who will, but I don't really want to do it? Do I teach because I want people to I want people to know that I did it because I want to be able to tell everybody about how many folks I brought to Christ, you know, like skins hanging on the wall. Why do I teach? 
I hope it's to save people. I hope that's it. Because really, that's the reason why Jesus did it. He wanted to point people back to God. That was his motivation. And that should be our sole motivation as well. No one ever spoke like this man, the officer said. They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at the authority, the logic, the rationality, the simplicity, the relevance. No one ever spoke like him. But you know, our Lord, our Lord has has told us that we're to follow in his footsteps. He's told us that we're to imitate him in every way. And our Lord has not given us anything that is impossible for us to do. So I'm confident, and I know you are too, that as we think about Jesus as a teacher, and as we think about ourselves and our obligation to teach others, it is a lofty, lofty obligation to be sure. It's not always easy. That's true too. But it's something that we all can do. Every child of God can do it to one degree or another. And if we will, to the best of our ability, look at the example that the greatest teacher the world has ever known has left us, then we can be effective. Look to his example and follow it as much as we can. I'm going to offer the Lord's invitation this evening. It may be there's someone here tonight who's not yet obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that, again, God wants all people to be saved. And the Bible teaches that God has uh, given a recipe, if you will, a plan for saving man. Uh, We have to believe in Jesus, John 3 and 16. Repent of our sins, Acts 3 and verse 19. Confess our faith, the Bible says, Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins, Acts 2 and 38. And the Bible tells us that if we're willing to do those things, that God will add us to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 2 and verse number 47. But maybe it's the case tonight that you are a Christian. You are. And you think about Jesus as a teacher. You think about some of the things that we've discussed this evening. And then you think for a moment about your own life and you think about your own... um, uh, your, your own uh, desire to be a teacher. And maybe it's the case that you think, you know what, I, I, have not, I haven't been following the example of Jesus as well as I could, and I want to do better about that. Well, of course, we want you to know that it would be our privilege to be able to pray with you and for you and to encourage and help you in whatever way that we can so that you can be the person and the teacher that God wants you to be. So if you have need, why don't you come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song together.